Hello everyone, this is Stavros Yanuka welcoming you to another episode of Wise Words, the podcast where we discuss all things to do with education and more. Um, our guest on this episode is Yalda Hakim, a journalist who works for BBC World and is the main presenter of one of their flagship news programs, Impact. Uh, Yalda was born in Afghanistan and moved to Australia at the age of three after her family fled the country following the Soviet invasion and ensuing war. Um, Yalda began her career in journalism as a cadet journalist at SBS World News Australia before rising through the ranks to co-present SBS Dateline, uh, a flagship news program. Yelda has reported from and on some of the most dangerous places in the world, including Libya during the Arab Spring and Kandahar province uh, in her native Afghanistan. Uh, on this episode, we talked, amongst other things, about Yelda's personal journey from refugee to high-profile journalist, how she, as a self-professed citizen of the world, is coping in an environment where global citizenship is coming under fire, and of course about the news and how mainstream media can regain trust uh, in the age of fake news. Um, if you want to find out more about Yalda's work, you can follow her on Twitter at BBC Yalda Hakim. That's all one word. Uh, and of course, watch her BBC World News program, Impact. And with that, Wise Words brings you Yalda Hakim. Yalda Hakim, welcome to Wise Words. Thank you for having me. Uh, Yalda, before we get into the, the substance of, uh, of our discussion, I think it'll be interesting uh, for our learn, uh, listeners to, uh, to hear a little bit about the, your personal backstory. You know, um, I often, it's now a term sort of that people look at with um, sort of skepticism or suspicion, but I do like to consider myself a global citizen because I think everyone comes from somewhere. Everyone, um, you know, uh, has sort of multiple identities and mine originated my in my country of birth, Afghanistan. Um, and that really has shaped how I now view things um, and, and the stories that I tell and the people I interview. Um, my passion for journalism really goes back to my personal story and, and the journey that my family made uh, traveling out of Afghanistan uh, during the Soviet um, uh, occupation of the country. And my father was supposed to be conscripted into the uh, military. Um, he'd just come back from Prague where he'd studied architecture and he didn't want to raise a family, a young family in war-torn Afghanistan. So I was six months old on horseback they fled to Pakistan and then subsequently went to uh, Australia where I knew from a very young age from about the age of seven that I wanted to be a journalist I wanted to be a storyteller whatever they were doing on the television traveling to interesting places meeting um, fascinating people and bringing their stories to people's living rooms is what I wanted to do whatever the name of that that was and it turned out to be journalism and um, I started my career in Australia um, and I was very fortunate uh, to uh, really do some very interesting things at, at a very interesting time the so-called Arab Spring um, uh, the uh, uprisings across the Arab world was taking place which took me uh, from Libya to Tunisia um, to Egypt um, so um, I've I've feel very fortunate that people are willing to open their homes, open their doors, and have conversations about their lives with me. And, and um, it, it's interesting because storytelling is something that you emphasize. Um, you're now the lead presenter for Impact. 
and and certainly in the in the sort of promotional uh, videos for Impact, you you do emphasize uh, the the importance of storytelling in in conveying the news. Can can you say a little bit more about that? Well, I think it's it's incredibly important as an anchor in studio to understand the places that you're talking about. That when you p interview people in studio, that you understand where these stories have originated from. Who are these people? When you refer to um, the war against ISIS in Mosul, who are these people who uh, had lived under the tyranny um, of this very dark black force um, mm -hmm. that had um, taken over large swathes of of northern Iraq and and um, uh, Syria. So, um, I, you know, for me, it's incredibly important that those two things go hand in hand, that I'm in the field telling the stories of people um, and bringing them back to my audiences uh, in, in the studio, which I think then gives um, a level of credibility um, in, in uh, the work that I do in the studio. And, you know, um, a Cambodian film director uh, spoke to me about um, living under the uh, regime of the Khmer Rouge, uh, the brutality, he'd lost every member of his, his family. Uh, he's now, uh, you know, in his, his um, late 60s, Riti Pan. And uh, he said to me, millions of people died um, during um, the, the, the time of the Khmer Rouge. And he was making one film um, uh, that was um, uh, directed by Angelina Jolie and we're doing a whole uh, documentary about this, about this tale of one girl and one family. And he said, actually, millions of people were affected. So I could make a film about each one of those people because every single person has a story. And that, that's interesting. And do you feel that the, the, the power, I guess, of 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 uh, of storytelling is that it humanizes these uh, the, these big events. It gives it gives an immediacy to to the issue. Whereas if you know if you hear about three million dead, you know um, I think it was Stalin that said that you know if the numbers become big enough, it stops being being a tragedy and it you know cynically said I should yes, say yeah. and it, it sort of becomes a statistic. Which, which in my business it does. When we talk about 100 dead in Baghdad or you know, 150 dead in, in Kabul when a suicide uh, bombing takes place, what does that actually mean? Um, and that's why I think in our storytelling um, we focus on the individual stories because people can relate then uh, with a seven-year-old girl yeah. uh, who's lost family members um, or a young family who are fleeing um, you know, Syria and trying to make their way um, in, in a very kind of dangerous, perilous journey uh, to safety um, to Europe um, so we try and rather than focus on a million people crossed over we try and focus on those individual stories that then represent the tale of so many others is there if I can play sort of devil's advocate a little bit is might there be a danger though to to, to sort of overemphasize the sort of the individual stories uh, in in the sense that we we then you know, we we get to sort of anecdote-driven news, mm -hmm. um, and then that that tends to then stir perhaps an emotional response in people. Well, I think you know, if you think about uh, the image of the little boy being washed up on the shores, um, I think I believe it was near Turkey when his family were fleeing, or or the young um, little boy sitting in the back of an ambulance in Syria, um, uh, you know, completely covered in dust, and and that really was on the front page of every newspaper, every major news outlet was talking about this little boy, and for a moment, for for a short uh, period, um, we stopped and we took notice and. Uh, 
you know, I think the problem um, then is with those things is that um, we feel that we need to then be activists and get on, I'm not talking about we as in journalists, but I think the public, mm-hmm. um, you know, get on social media, get on Twitter, get on Facebook and express their outrage and this, this picture then goes viral. But actually, does that actually change anything on the ground? So I think as a storyteller, I think it's incredibly important to focus on individual stories because someone sitting in their living room, you know, on the other side of the, the, the world can somehow connect because actually we do live in an incredibly connected world. And what goes on in Yemen or in Saudi Arabia or in Iran or in Iraq does impact us in the West. Um, and I think that's a, a distinction that we need to understand that, you know, they're not some faraway land anymore, um, that we live in an incredibly globalized world and people are connected. And, um, you know, if we talk about the rise of ISIS, we saw um, a whole range of terrorist attacks across Europe um, in the last few years. So, yes, those. Um, if, if you look at it from a cynical perspective, do we have sort of, you know, these um, very, uh, our attention span is limited and we focus on one story, we tweet about it, we move on, you know. But I think our job as journalists, as, as people in the business who um, want to tell these stories, we just have to continue highlighting the issues in whatever method that we can. Yeah. Do you feel that you're, you're, I mean, sp- speaking about, you know, about Yemen, about Syria, about Afghanistan, and, and how, you know, these are not sort of far away places anymore, and they, they do impact, um, impact people in the West, people uh, uh, elsewhere, say, in the, in the so-called developed world. Um, do you feel that your, your cultural heritage, your, your personal story, gives you added insight and, and credibility in, in in making that connection. Yeah, I mean, you know, I said earlier that um, my personal story has played a huge role in what I have chosen to do today. And my story is not unique. Um, you know, millions of people have experienced um, migration and finding a home uh, in a new land, and um, that becomes part of their story. Um, so I think definitely my background, um, the experiences that my family had, the journey that they took, my understanding of um, justice, women's rights, uh, geopolitics has been shaped um, by the fact that these are conversations and discussions that took place around our living room table from as long as I can remember. Um, So yes, I feel like I had a very privileged life in Australia, but I was always taught never to forget, um, you know, the fact that uh, my parents were forced to flee as a result of of war. Um, And so I think definitely the, the story that I have has played a role in shaping me wanting to give a platform to some of these very uh, sort of voiceless victims, if you may. Yeah. And, and you mentioned, you know, you began our, our discussion by, by saying that, uh, that you consider yourself a global citizen. Um, I consider myself to be in, in that category. Um, I, I suppose, not to put too fine a point to it, but, but we've been getting a bad rap recently um, as, as global citizens. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, how do you, you know, feel? I mean, e- even in the UK, for example, I think it was the, the prime minister a, a year or so ago, you know, famously said that if you consider your, yourself a, you know, a, a citizen of the world, then then in reality you're a citizen of nowhere. Mm. Um, I, I found that deeply troubling, you know, coming from 
um, yeah, an otherwise thoughtful leader, mm -hmm. I should say. Mm -hmm. But um, how do you you see yourself navigating this this new environment uh, I, that we find ourselves in now? I think you know it comes from fear, um, commentary about people who have uh, travel or consider themselves to have homes in, in, in all sorts of places or have made a home in different parts of the world. I think it comes fr um, from a place of fear to, to look at people and say, you're a global citizen. What does that actually mean? Are you from somewhere? Do you have uh, patriotic um, you know, instincts? Um, I, would you consider yourself um, supporting a nation and, and their cause and their, their, their views on things? I think if I speak to so many people on a daily basis and you know they might have been born in mainland China started their career in Hong Kong and ended up living in London and I think this is the reality of the world that we live in um, that we're an ever interconnected world and people come from everywhere and um, that doesn't mean that we necessarily uh, you know um, in my from my personal um, sort of experience that doesn't mean that I don't consider myself an Afghan Australian and those two um, uh, bits of my identity don't shape uh, how I view the world but I think it's 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 enriching um, it's, it's uh, I think, um, enlightening. It's, it's made me um, view the world from, from various different perspectives as, uh, as, a, as a woman, as a journalist, as, as someone who um, uh, comes from a, a country that's been so troubled and then had the privilege of being raised in a very peaceful environment. And then having the options. Um, I think the fact that I've got options, um, you know, as a as a as a young Afghan woman, to have the option to live where I want, uh, work where I want, and I think that in itself, um, uh, you know, is a huge privilege. And I sh I don't think we should view that as something fearful. We add mm -hmm. to value to the conversation. I think. Yeah, and, and I, I suppose you know another way to uh, perhaps to look at it is yes, there's there's value to um, you know to the host mm. nation, for, for lack of a Absolutely. better term. But there's also value to um, to, to the nations from, from whence one, one came. I mean, if you look at, you know, the, the important role that, you know, diasporas have played, uh, the Jewish diaspora, most, argue, you know, most, most famously, but, but also, you know, uh, looking at my heritage, the, the sort of the Hellenic, mm. Um, diaspora has, you know, contributed and contributes enormously to, um, uh, you know, to, to the to the mother country. Absolutely, in many respects. very much so to the country they've adopted and the country that they uh, have left behind. Um, you know, these these communities give back um, essentially. You know, um, we see how they are educated in one place and then go back and and try and help out in whatever way they can, depending on where they've come from. So, I think um, it can only be a good thing that we um, sort of have these shared experiences. How how does one though engage? Because I, I know it's 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 kind of easy being you know being in London, e even being in in you know in a, in a uh, multicultural place like like Doha, uh, you know, <laughs> attending these these sort of global events as as we're doing now at the uh, Rizina Dialogue in 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 New Delhi. I mean, it's easy to sort of I I, I suppose uh, forget that. Large parts of the world, and and I, and I include the developed world mm. as as, uh, as well, don't actually get to experience globalization in in, in quite the same way. 
how do we sort of, I mean, how does one communicate to them, um, you know, and, and, and take into account their concerns um, about, I guess, loss of identity, loss of, of their, you know, perceived place in the world? I think it depends where you're talking about. So if you, I, I went and covered a story about the building collapse um, in Bangladesh that killed over a thousand people, Rana Plaza. And actually, I think for those people, for the people who worked in that factory and the people who lost their lives, their concern was putting food on the table. Their concern was um, being able to make enough money, um, work in these horrific conditions in, in, in that um, garment factory to be able to educate their families. There were girls as young as 14, 13 working in the factories. So I think for them, it's not a question of, um, you know, loss of identity. I think uh, their priorities are quite different. So it really depends on who we're talking about, where, if we're talking about the developed world, um, you know, um, I think if we, if you look at Afghanistan, for example, that we've got um, a really young, exciting um, a group of people who have emerged post 9-11, uh, who are very aspirational, um, who have a very uh, strong sense of identity and where they want to see the future of their country. But their purpose is to ensure that their nation remains secure so that they do have these mm -hmm. options. So I think it really is comes down to a matter of um, uh, perception, you know, and, and how we view things. And and um, for us, things like um, our identity might be quite crucial. But, um, you know, if in, in a lot of these places, their priorities might be quite different. Now, that's quite different to identity politics, I think. You know, um, at the moment in Afghanistan, we're looking um, at, a, a, at a debate where uh, someone said they did a survey as to who they see as a viable leader in the future. And every... Um, the majority of people that they surveyed all viewed um, someone who was 37, young, educated to lead the country. So they're looking for young, fresh blood. Now we're, we're talking about people who um, have dealt with uh, patronage and warlords and um, the same faces re-emerging all the time and, and um, maintaining control um, of the nation. And so it's, it's quite heartening to see them now focusing on the majority of the public see um, 37 young person wanting to, they want to see that leading their country. However, depending on where you conducted the survey, they wanted their own ethnic group, someone from their own ethnic group to lead the country. So I think that th there are different sort of um, arguments and debates that take place in all of these, these different um, countries um, around identity. What I've always found intriguing, and 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 I've you know there isn't much I haven't heard much discussion uh, about this is the is is the whole the whole notion that that people tend to treat identity as somehow being static, mm. as being 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 something that you are you know you you are born into and and that has been there you know since time immemorial. It's been sort of shaped by. By your your deep history and 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 uh, uh, and culture, and people tend to forget that actually identity evolves. I mean, it's never static. Absolutely not. Identity is something that needs to evolve. I think if you're not changing, not growing, you need to reevaluate what you're doing. Now, you know, I I, I think one has to continue to 
redefine themselves, look at um, how they're viewing the world, look at um, how that then shapes their worldview. And I think that all comes into the argument of identity. It evolves, you change, you um, you uh, adapt. And I think um, these things are really important that we need to continue to have conversations, especially with young people, um, that it's okay if your identity evolves and your worldview changes and your understanding of things continues to grow and change depending on the environment that you're in. It's also important that you challenge that, you challenge yourself and you challenge um, uh, the, uh, the kind of um, different viewpoints that are being put um, before you and, and, then, and then determine how you view yourself and your place in the world. Yeah. No, yeah, it, I mean, it's, it's, I guess it's called growing up, to, not to sound too patronizing. <laughs> but, but yeah, that's, that tends to happen to you as you, you know, as you, as you grow, uh, grow older and you should be constantly learning and reevaluating, as you say. Um, let's let's turn back to the to the news now, if if we will, and and um, talk a little bit about what the you know what you see as the future of news. Um, you, you obviously work for a very um, a very well established, very uh, old uh, uh, news organization, the BBC. Um, you know, high brand recognition, uh, strong reputation. How do you see the the future of news uh, evolving? Well, I think we live in the most exciting time. Uh, this is the most exciting time to be in news. Um, so last year when the presidential debates were taking place in the United States, I was up at four o'clock in the morning watching the debates and then I went into work and I interviewed a series of people um, about the previous night's debate. And you know, you, you do have, no matter how many stories you do, how many people you interview, you do have a moment where you have to pitch yourself and think, you know, I'm part of this very exciting global conversation. Our market is now heavily fragmented and we're looking at different uh, platforms um, uh, that, that sort of um, uh, exist now. Um, and uh, everyone potentially thinks they're a newsmaker. Um, if they're tweeting away, they think that they're a newsmaker. Yeah. But there's, we have to make the distinction between um, people who deliver the news in a uh, sort of a factual way that's um, impartial and balanced and those people who are just putting out random bits of information that may be uh, correct or not. Um, so I, I think it is now fundamentally more important than ever for us while it's an incredibly exciting news cycle time it's also incredibly important for us uh, to be forensic in our um, reporting, to be impartial, to maintain um, our values. Um, and I think this is something that the BBC definitely takes incredibly uh, seriously. You know, we don't put facts and figures out unless they've been checked and then rechecked and verified. Um, so even if other news outlets are putting um, the number of people who have been killed in an attack, for example, the numbers are out or the name of, of someone who's launched an attack is, is out there on social media and on some of the other platforms, we do not do it until the authorities have um, officially released that name because we do have a reputation to maintain. And I think um, in order to, in this climate where our credibility is being questioned on a daily basis, every single day, um, then it, it's m more important than ever for us to be vigilant. Let's let's talk a little bit about so the, the credibility in this, this notion of, of balance. Um, because w w what I've observed uh, as a consumer of, of news is that um, you know, some folks' idea of balance is to, to say, well, look, there's always, you know, there's always two sides to, to, you know, a story. So if you, 
you take climate change as, as, as an example, um, you know, if, if we're discussing climate change, then, you know, you, you have, you know, one, you know, scientist on that, 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 you know, obviously explains the science behind climate change. But then some organizations almost feel, and a lot of news organizations feel compelled to give a sort of a platform to um, the skeptics. Now, if you poll the scientific community, you'll find that you know 97 or 98 percent of of scientists will tell you climate change is real. It's 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 uh, man-made, um, and there really isn't much of an argument. So, so how do you? I mean, how how do you weigh your balance? I guess to to reflect the 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 actual consensus as opposed to to sort of ticking a box that says, oh well, I've you know I have to present both sides of of the argument that's a tricky one i mean we've had ongoing discussions at the bbc uh, about the current climate for example and people from the alt-right um and uh, sometimes giving them a platform means that they will make incredibly racist remarks on air and it can be live sometimes so what is our um moral obligation to our listeners to our audience and to our own charter um to ensure that Okay, do we give these people a platform? Uh, are these voices important in the current debate? And I think the view potentially is it's mixed. Some people would say, actually, there's no need to give um, someone who uh, will get on air and make racist remarks uh, a platform. And then other people would say that actually, given the environment that we're in, given that certain groups um, uh, have a voice and they're, they're mobilizing on things like social media, so... What um, social media, I think, has done is where sometimes these um, uh, voices were viewed to be on the periphery, they're now becoming more and more vocal and, and they're able to mobilize globally um, on, on this shared platform. Now, where do we fit into that? Do we give them that platform? And I think um, as someone who believes in debate and discussion and disagreement, I think it helps us grow. I think um, uh, listening to views from all sides is, is, is incredibly important because, again, we learn and, and it's about evolving and it's about um, understanding the, the, the uh, other side. So I think what's happened is the left have become more left, the right have become more right, and we only want to listen to the opinions and views of people who reflect our own views. But I think our job as broadcasters is to provide a platform for both sides. Now, climate change, for example, is, is um, uh, something uh, different when you, when you talk about scientific facts. It's important for us to um, provide those platforms Provided people also give facts, and it's our job to then moderate that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I hear you, and, and in general terms, I would I would be inclined to agree. And and you know, they, they, they always say anyway that 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 you know sunlight is the best disinfectant. So you know, sometimes the way to sort of neutralize um, you know uh, abhorrent viewpoints is to sort of expose them um, and and show how um, how ludicrous they they are. What what troubles me though a little bit is that we we um, we no longer it seems um, speak the same language and 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 I'm not taking a, a political position. I think the problem is 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 uh, more pronounced on on the right, but it it exists on on the left as well, where you know we've lost 
the the capacity to talk to each other based on certain sort of accepted parameters, namely, you know, that, that truth is important, that logic and reason should be the 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 pillars around which we construct an argument. So what tends to happen now is you have highly charged, highly emotional shouting matches that that, you know, that that pretend that it's it's dialogue. I mean it's not dialogue. Dialogue involves an exchange of views. It involves listening you know, to what the other person has to say and then responding, you know, um, in an effort to find, uh, I suppose, common ground. And, and I don't see that on the, you know, on the media. And, and partly it's, it's maybe it's the, the short time that you have to get those views reflected that everyone just wants to, you know, get their points across and that's, that's it. You know, I, I think at the BBC we certainly provide... Um, we think about every single person that we bring on um, and what their background is and so that that we try and encourage um, dialogue and debate but I do understand what you mean about certain outlets who create platforms where people are just screaming at each other I don't think that we should necessarily on the one hand perhaps you know we should be questioning the times that we're in but on the other hand I don't think we should be so deeply troubled um, I think that you know this isn't the most troubling time in history. I think it's important for us to disagree, argue, have opposing views, because I think the younger generation needs to understand how did we get here? How did we establish the values that we do? How did we, um, you know, how are certain nations formed and they uphold these values of, um, of truth and um, impartiality and justice and, um, you know, the fourth estate and, and democracy and all of these values that we have? How did we actually get here? And I think it's really important for, um, the next generation to, to sort of understand that, you know, that, that for them to look at the situation now and really I think democracy is being tested and that's a good thing, um, you know, rather than just kind of going along and, and sort of just not being able to hear um, the grievances of all sides. I think, in fact, what we need to do more of is um, give platform to people of all views um, and give them a voice. And I think that was part of the problem of what happened in the United States um, during the presiden presidential elections. The media was accused of not giving a platform and a voice or an understanding to certain communities. They didn't understand the troubles that they had. And that's why perhaps the media was also accused of being off the mark when it came to certain things. So, um, no, I'm not at all troubled. I think, mm. I think this is... As I say, as a newsmaker, it's the most exciting time. But I think as people, the fact that you, everywhere you go, whether I sit in a taxi uh, in Puerto Rico or, or I walk into a, a conference in Delhi, people are energized and have strong views about the current climate. And I th I'm really energized by that myself. No, I, I, again, I, I, I don't want to, I mean, I, I fully agree with you that you know, the, the times that we are living in are by no means troubling. Looked at from a historical lens, um, you, you're absolutely right. I mean, that th things have been a lot worse. Um, I, I suppose the the concern that that, that I have and, and 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 other folks have is is about the trajectory that we're on. Mm -hmm. You know, is 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 what we're experiencing? You know, a, a blip and you know, a, a, an important test, something that we have to go through in order to, to sort of make the next giant leap forward? Or are we, 
you know, on a, on a slippery slope. And of course, it's, it's impossible to, you know, to, to predict uh, the future. Um, I, I suppose what I'm trying to do at least, and this is where maybe we can, you know, bring this conversation um, back to education, is, is to, to see what role education can play you know, to ensure that, you know, this, this becomes, you know, a blip and, 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 you know, the road to something, you know, um, something better. And then, uh, so I'd love to get your views. I mean, it used to be the case that, you know, people would advise, you know, parents would advise their kids, oh, you know, you've got uh, part of your broader education, you know, you've got to read the newspaper, you've got to listen to the news, you know, back when the news was, you know, the, the mm -hmm. nine o'clock news or, um, what have you it was kind of that that singular moment in in uh in time um do you still feel that the news has a part to play in in hugely, education hugely hugely um and i and i would advise um young people to not just read things that m they're comfortable with read things that make you uncomfortable um get yourself out of your comfort zone and that would be looking at news across the spectrum, you know, um, and read things um, that that you may challenge challenge your thinking. Um, and I think news and the media have a huge role to play in that still, if not more so, um, because we are disrupted. We are being challenged by various different platforms that have emerged um, that are. Um, as we said earlier, that view themselves as um, as newsmakers in their own right. Um, that's why our position is more essential than ever. And I think, absolutely, young people should still be reading um, the news, should still be watching um, uh, various different um, platforms that give them information and educate them and help them understand the world that we're living in. But outside of that, they should um, engage with things that are a little bit different for them, a little bit uncomfortable, um, challenge their worldview. I think, I think that's what we need to really um, teach our young people, that they need to disrupt themselves. I, I mean, the, the only, the only I, I, again, absolutely agree, the only uh, caveat to that that I would introduce is to say, well, yes, but make sure that you understand where the information that you are consuming comes from. And that's the biggest challenge. Yeah. And, and it's different to read, you know, to read something on the, you know, on the BBC or, or, or you know, or the New York Times, um, you know, or even, you know, just to sort of give the, the uh, right wing some, some uh, do you hear the, you know, the Daily Telegraph and, and you know, other uh, organizations that have, you know, worked long and hard to build, you know, reputations, you know, versus something that comes from, you know, uh, xyz.com. This is the challenge yeah. that we face. And, you know, it's troubling when Stanford University puts out uh, a study and says majority of young people that they surveyed couldn't uh, distinguish between um, factual news and, and fake news. They had trouble um, seeing the difference. I think that's where educational institutes need to play a huge part in making people understand the climate we're in, the platforms that exist, the kinds of things that people are just making up um, and presenting uh, it to people as as um, fake, uh, real truthful yeah. news, but actually it's fake news. Um, you know, I, I think about the um, uh, 
the bit of news that circulated on on Twitter about um, Hillary Clinton running a, a, a child sex a sex uh, yeah out of ring. the pizzeria yes, right? absolutely yeah. and someone turned up and someone you know was attacked and um, so yes it's incredibly important when emotions are highly charged and people feel very passionately about things that they don't just see things um, in their newsfeed on their Facebook page and don't question where that's come from and I think not just educational institutes but the big five, the 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 platforms, um, you know, the 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 Twitters and Facebooks and Googles of the the world need to take more responsibility um, in playing a role in this um, to ensure that the next generation of people are grappling with a whole heap of other challenges when it comes to um, these things. And and if they are going to provide a platform for news, but they're saying we don't have any kind of editorial, we're just a platform, we don't have any kind of editorial uh, control over this. I, I think that's that's the wrong sort of tack to take because these things are out there now and, um, you know, it's it's about navigating it for them um, and, and helping young young minds that are growing uh, to understand it. No, abso- absolutely. And I, again, I've, I've, I've also spoken and uh, and and commented that I you know I think they you know Facebook Twitter um, Google they they have editorial responsibilities now you know do do they extend um, to to the same degree as as uh, a bona fide uh, news organization perhaps not but but it's certainly not uh, a you know put your hands up and say well you know I can't I can't help this sorry. Uh, because even even things like you know how you design the algorithm to work, mm. um, what kind of things it, it, it it's not a neutral, uh, 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 it's it involves choices, and and if what you, appears if, on your feed when yeah. how and and if those you know if, if something involves a choice then it's it's no longer neutral, mm. uh, you're making decisions that that impact what kind of news people see and consume and read. Um, if if we can just uh, uh, pause a little bit and and um, oh, sorry I've lost my train of thought now. <laughs> <laughs> um. Sorry, I'm just getting calls from the organisers now as well. Yeah, so no worries. I think. Okay. Yelda, we're coming up to um, to our uh, our time, so I want to uh, end our uh, very interesting conversation by asking you the question that we ask all, um, all all people who come to the to the podcast and that is if you had to pick one subject one area of of, of you know knowledge uh, or, or exploration that you would want every person um, who is uh, undergoing an education to uh, to know to be aware of what would that be hmm. Oh, you really put me on the spot of all the questions. So I have to choose one area in general, just any topic. Yeah, any any topic. I mean, it could be you know, it could be a you know a, a subject that that is you know it could be history or or uh, you know literature or. I mean, I I was going yeah. to say uh, you know one area that I think um, young people should really try and understand is history um, because it goes back to all our conversations about identity where we've come from how did we get here why are we in this place in time and to allay some of the fears of of how um this isn't the most um the worst period in history actually um you know um when we look at poverty levels for example or the kind of wars that are taking place if 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 
people look back over time, we've been in worse situations. And I think, um, therefore, an un understanding of um, our past and our history and, and uh, getting a sense of how we got to the place we were in and why we value some of these things, uh, you know, some of our own values so dearly um, is, is, is sort of critical, I think, um, for every young person to, to really help them understand and shape their own identities. Thank you, Yalda, and thank you for being on Wise Words. Thanks for having me. If you're enjoying the Wise Words podcast and want to find out more about our guests and their work, as well as discover what else we do at Wise, you can visit us at www.wise-qatar.org backslash wise-words. And if you want to continue the discussion, compliment or critique us, you can find us on Twitter at wise underscore tweets or at wise underscore CEO, hashtag wise pod. We would also appreciate reviews on iTunes because it helps other people find us.